0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, October 7th, 2022, episode 96, Concerning the Relics and Grave of King Oswald. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. In our last regular episode, we heard about how the Welsh Prince Llewellyn and his brother David... Both lost their heads. Well, turnabout is fair play, and so in this episode, an English king will lose his. Llewellyn and David's heads were put on display for political purposes by King Edward I. Today's head was likewise initially taken as a trophy of war, but found an extended life as a holy relic. This is the head of King Oswald of Northumbria, separated from his body around the year 642, though actually we're kind of going to spend more time with Oswald's grave than with his body parts. Our account today of the wonders worked by Oswald's remains and substances adjacent to them comes from the Venerable Bede, a monk at the twin abbeys of Monk Wermouth and Jarrow in the late 7th to early 8th centuries, who has been called the father of English history for his book Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, or The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. While this book is ostensibly about the development of the church in England, it necessarily covers a lot of politics as well, and is thus one of our most valuable sources for early Anglo-Saxon history. And our story today comes from it. Unlike William of Malmesbury, who seems never to have heard an anecdote he wasn't ready to copy into his work, Bede tends to stick to the main thread of events as a historian. It's not accurate to say that accounts of wonders or miracles are rare in Bede. Uh, He certainly does include them when he's writing about saints, and his church history contains a fair amount of hagiography. But he does seem somewhat more reserved, I would say, in presenting the miraculous compared to some of our later medieval chroniclers. Nonetheless, this little run of Oswald miracles we're going to hear is about as good an example of a mirabilia catalogue as we get in the Historia Ecclesiastica. And in telling Oswald's story, Bede might also be indulging himself a bit out of partisan zeal. Bede is a Northumbrian, and Oswald stands out as a patriotic Northumbrian hero, so that might explain him reveling in these proofs of Oswald's sanctity and specialness. Oswald had died only about 90 years before Bede is writing about him. His reign is a bit too far back to still be in living memory for Bede, but it's only one generation or so removed from living memory. And certainly several of the miracles which occurred in the years after his death are, uh, Bede claims, attested by living witnesses. So it's worth keeping that in mind, that for Bede and his original audience, this was still relatively recent history. Bede doesn't actually tell us what year Oswald was born, but he does say he was 38 when he died in 642, so a little back-of-the-envelope math puts his birth year around 604. This is an interesting time in Great Britain for national and ethnic identities. We have some significantly sharper divisions than we perceive in England today, or even in the later Middle Ages. So here's our early medieval Britain timeline refresher. And just a quick apology to British listeners for whom a lot of this is probably primary school material. Uh, Just bear in mind that elsewhere, early British history and British geography aren't necessarily given as much attention in the classroom. And I should, of course, also extend this apology to all of you history buffs out there who are already familiar with these stories, however you came to them. Okay, so... Previously, Celtic Britain is under Roman control up to Hadrian's Wall in the north and the Welsh marches to the west from roughly the time the Romans invaded in 43 CE until the legions were withdrawn in the year 410. Obviously, they didn't control everything right away, but it only took about 50 years to secure much of the province. Over the next three centuries, the native Celtic-British culture is Romanized, with exactly how much it was Romanized being an ongoing point of investigation and debate. And then after the legions leave, the so-called post-Roman Britons carry on until 449, when they, as tradition has it, invited some migrant Germanic tribes, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, over to help fight back the non-Romanized Picts and Welsh. When those tribes arrived, they basically looked at the British kings and said, So you're saying you need us because you're unable to defend yourselves? Okay, well, in that case, this is our country now. The more complicated version is that there had already been some patterns of migration into Britain earlier and continuing later by German tribes, and the famous tale recorded by Bede of the British king Vortigern and his invitation to the chieftain brothers Hingist and Horsa is at best merely emblematic of this larger pattern of Germanic settlement uh, if it isn't entirely mythical. Oswald is born into a family of pagan Angles around, as I said, 604 CE, when the Anglo-Saxons are still a colonizing force, culturally, politically, and for the most part religiously distinct from the native Britons. So, to be clear there, The English are these Germanic newcomers, and the Britons are the Romano-Celtic natives. Though, by the time of our story in the 600s, when Bede says the Britons, he's mainly talking about what we'd now call the Welsh. Now, in the north of England, where Oswald was from... Some of the Angles may also have been more or less Romanized. Uh, it's been theorized that some of the Germanic settlers in the north descended from Angles who had been employed as mercenaries stationed along Hadrian's Wall during the Roman period in Britain. That said, Oswald's father was Ethelfrith, a solidly Old English Anglo-Saxon name, uh, which does not point to much cultural assimilation there. Ethelfrith was the king of Bernicia. His grandfather Ida is the first recorded Anglian king of Bernicia, so we're here just a few generations into the transition from Brythonic Britannia to Anglo Saxon Angoland. The kingdom of Bernicia lay on the northeastern border of what is now England, and up to the late 10th century, extended into parts of what is now southern Scotland, uh, including the Scottish borders and Lothian. Indeed, for a couple of centuries, Scotland's modern capital of Edinburgh was controlled by the dynasty of Angles that Oswald is a part of. To the south of Bernicia, covering a good part of modern Yorkshire, lay the kingdom of Dara. Oswald's mother was Acca, who was part of the Daran royal line, and so with this union, Athelfrith is able to rule both kingdoms, now united under the name Northumbria, a name signifying the domain north of the Humber estuary. While Oswald is still a child, his father, Ethelfrith is killed in battle, and Oswald's maternal uncle, Edwin, seizes the Northumbrian throne. Oswald and his siblings escape into exile in the Scottish kingdom of Dalriata, perhaps staying on the Isle of Iona, where St. Columba, a.k.a. Colmkilla, founded the famous monastery. Or perhaps they went to Ireland, as I've seen in other accounts. As we discussed in episode 48, concerning the sharp wit, unorthodox wisdom, and a brutal death of John the Scot, the Latin word scoti, which Bede uses, covers the Celts of both Ireland and Scotland. According to Bede, wherever Oswald was, he was converted to Christianity and baptized by Celtic Christian missionaries, and even gained considerable fluency in the Irish language. In 633, his uncle Edwin is killed in battle against the combined armies of Cadwalla, the king of Gwyneth, and Penda, king of Mercia. Bede describes the perpetrators of this calamity as follows, and we should bear in mind that this is presented to us through Bede's English and Northumbrian bias. Quote, At this time a great slaughter was made in the church and nation of the Northumbrians, and the more so because one of the commanders by whom it was done was a pagan, and the other a barbarian, more cruel than a pagan. For Pinda, with all the nation of the Mercians, was an idolater, and a stranger to the name of Christ. But Cadwalla, though he bore the name and professed himself a Christian, was so barbarous in his disposition and behavior that he neither spared the female sex nor the innocent age of children, but with savage cruelty put the whole of them to tormenting deaths." Ravaging all their country for a long time, and resolving to cut off all the race of the English within the borders of Britain. Nor did he pay any respect to the Christian religion which had newly taken root among them, it being to this day the custom of the Britons not to pay any respect to the faith and religion of the English, nor to communicate with them any more than with pagans." Northumbria, again, splits into two kingdoms. Oswald's brother Ainfrith is briefly king of Bernicia before he, too, is slain by Cadwalla, when, according to Bede, he visited the Welsh king to sue for peace, accompanied by only a dozen men as bodyguards, and was slaughtered. Oswald then meets Cadwalla in battle, and this time it's the Welsh king who dies, and Oswald reunites Northumbria under one crown. For Bede, this battle is a great triumph for Christianity sidestepping the fact that Cadwalla was himself Christian. He had, after all, allied with the pagan villain Penda, and that's enough to make him a, quote, impious commander of the Britons, slain by an army, quote, strengthened with the faith of Christ. Bede notes that Oswald's murdered brother had backslid into pagan ways upon getting his crown, and thus Cadwalla was an unwitting instrument of God's wrath. In contrast to the faithlessness or apostasy of his brother, Oswald erects a wooden cross and prays in front of it before his battle and, with echoes of Emperor Constantine's battle cross, rides on to victory with God on his side. Unfortunately, while God helps Oswald crush the wicked Christian Cadwalla, he apparently doesn't lend his hand nine years later when Oswald falls to the pagan Penda. Bede is quite effusive in describing God's vengeance on Oswald's apostate brother, but goes curiously silent on what it signifies that Oswald is defeated by a pagan. And a particularly notorious pagan in Anglo-Saxon history at that, Penda of Mercia. Perhaps the implied answer, as we shall shortly hear, is that in death, Oswald becomes a kind of martyr, able now to testify to the power of Christianity through miracle cures and other wonders. And there may also have been another complicating element to Oswald's career that we'll come to after the text. I'm not going to go into other details of Oswald's reign right now, um, but we may come back to a couple of Bede's stories from it at some point in the future. So instead, let's get to our text This is the Venerable Bede's account of the miracles surrounding the relics of King Oswald of Northumbria, as recounted in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People, as translated by Joseph Stevenson. Oswald, the most Christian king of the Northumbrians, reigned nine years, including that year which is to be held accursed for the brutal impiety of the king of the Britons and the mad apostasy of the English kings. For, as was said above, it is agreed by the unanimous consent of all that the names and memory of the apostates should be entirely erased from the catalog of the Christian kings and no date be ascribed to their reign. After which period, Oswald was killed in a great battle, by the same pagan nation and pagan king of the Mercians who had slain his predecessor Edwin at a place called, in the English tongue, Maserfeld, in the 38th year of his age, on the fifth day of the month of August. Stevenson's footnote. The locality is a disputed point. A place called Winwick, in Lancashire, named Maserfield, has claims to be regarded as the spot where the battle was fought, but there are stronger arguments in favor of Oswestry, i.e. Oswald's tree, in Shropshire. It is called by the Welsh Croy Oswald, Oswald's Cross, and here is a church mentioned by Leland which is dedicated to that king. How great his faith was towards God, and how remarkable his devotion, has been made evident by miracles since his death. For, in the place where he was killed by the pagans, fighting for his country, infirm men and cattle are healed to this day. Whereupon many took up the very dust of the place where his body fell on the ground, and putting it into water, did much good with it to their friends who were sick. This custom came so much into use, that the earth being carried away by degrees, there remained a hole as deep as the height of a man. Nor is it to be wondered that the sick should be healed in the place where he died, for whilst he lived, he never ceased to provide for the poor and infirm, and to bestow alms on them and assist them. Many miracles are said to have been wrought in that place, or with the earth carried from thence, but we have thought it sufficient to mention two which we heard from our ancestors. It happened, not long after his death, that a man was traveling on horseback near that place, when his horse on a sudden began to tire, to stand stock still, hang down his head and foam at the mouth, and at length, as his pain increased, he fell to the ground. The rider dismounted, and throwing some straw under him, waited to see whether the beast would recover, or he should have to leave him dead. At length, after much rolling about in extreme anguish, the horse happened to come to the very place where the illustrious king died. Immediately, the pain ceased. The beast gave over his mad struggles, and, as is usual with tired horses, turned gently from side to side, and then, starting up, perfectly recovered, began to graze on the green herbage. This the man observing, being an ingenious person, he concluded there must be some wonderful sanctity in the place where the horse had been healed, and left a mark there that he might know the spot again. After which he again mounted his horse and repaired to the inn where he intended to stop. On his arrival he found there a girl, niece to the landlord, who had long languished under the palsy, And when the friends of the family, in his presence, lamented the girl's bitter calamity, he gave them an account of the place where his horse had been cured. In short, she was put into a cart and carried and laid down at the place. Being placed there, she slept a while, and when she awaked, found herself healed of her bodily infirmity, upon which she called for water, washed her face, arranged her hair, and covered her head with a linen cloth, and returned home on foot in good health with those who had brought her. About the same time, another person of the British nation, as is reported, happened to travel by the same place where the aforesaid battle was fought, and, observing one particular spot of ground greener and more beautiful than any other part of the field, he judiciously concluded with himself that there could be no other cause for that unusual greenness in that place but that some person of more holiness than any other in the army had there been killed. He therefore took along with him some of the dust of that earth, tying it up in a linen cloth, supposing it would, some time or other, be of use for curing sick people, and, proceeding on his journey, he came at evening to a certain village and entered a house where the villagers were feasting at supper. Being received by the owners of the house, he sat down with them at the entertainment, hanging the cloth in which he had brought the earth on a post against the wall. They feasted long and drank hard with a great fire in the middle of the room. It happened that the sparks flew up and caught the top of the house, which, being made of wattles and covered with thatch, was presently in a flame. When the guests saw this, they suddenly ran out in a fright without being able to put a stop to the fire, which was about to consume the house. The house was consequently burnt down. Only that post on which the dust hung remained entire and untouched by the flames. On observing this wonder, they were all amazed and, inquiring into it diligently, understood that the dust had been taken from the place where the blood of King Oswald had been shed. These miracles being made known and reported far and wide, many began daily to frequent that place and received health to themselves and their friends. Among the rest, I think we ought not to pass over in silence the heavenly power and miracle which were shown when his bones were found and translated into the church where they are now preserved." This was done by the care of Austretha, queen of the Mercians, the daughter of his brother Oswiu, who reigned after him, as shall be said hereafter. There is a noble monastery in the province of Lindisi, called Bardni, which that queen and her husband Athelred much loved, venerated, and honored. It was here that she was desirous to lay the venerable bones of her uncle. When the wagon in which those bones were carried arrived towards evening at the aforesaid monastery, They that were in it refused to admit them, because, though they knew him to be a holy man, yet, as he was a native of another province and had acquired dominion over them as a foreign king, they retained their ancient aversion to him even after death. Thus it came to pass that the relics were left in the open air all that night, with only a large tent spread over the wagon in which they were, but the appearance of a heavenly miracle showed with how much reverence they ought to be received by all the faithful, for During that whole night, a pillar of light, reaching from the wagon up to heaven, was seen by almost all the inhabitants of the province of Lindisi. Hereupon, in the morning, the brethren of that monastery, who had refused it the day before, themselves began earnestly to pray that those holy relics, so beloved by God, might be deposited among them. Accordingly, the bones, being washed, were put into a shrine which they had made for that purpose and placed in the church with due honor." and, that there might be a perpetual memorial of the royal person of this holy man, they hung up over the monument his banner made of gold and purple, and poured out the water in which they had washed the bones in a corner of the sacristy. From that time, the very earth which received that holy water had the effect of a salutary grace in expelling devils from the bodies of persons possessed. Lastly, when the aforesaid queen afterwards made some stay in the same monastery, there came to visit her a certain venerable abbess, who is still living, called Athelhild, the sister of the holy men Athelwyn and Aldwyn, the first of whom was bishop in the province of Lindisi, the other abbot of the monastery called Partney, not far from which was her monastery. When this lady was come thither, in a conversation between her and the queen, the discourse, among other things, turning upon Oswald, she said that she also had that night seen a light reaching from the relics up to heaven. The queen thereupon added that the very dust of the pavement on which the water that washed the bones had been spilt had already healed many sick persons. She thereupon desired that some of the said healthful dust might be given her, which she tied up in a cloth and putting it into a little casket, returned home. Sometime after, when she was in her monastery, there came to it a guest who was wont often in the night to be on a sudden grievously tormented with an unclean spirit. He, being hospitably entertained and having gone to bed after supper, was on a sudden seized by the devil and began to cry out, to gnash his teeth, to foam at the mouth and to distort his limbs by different movements. None being able to hold or bind him, the servant ran and knocking at the door, acquainted the abbess. She, opening the monastery door, went out herself with one of the nuns to the place of the men and, calling a priest, desired he would come with her to the sufferer. Being come thither, and seeing many more present who had not been able, though they endeavored it, to hold the tormented person and prevent his convulsive motions, the priest used exorcisms and did all he could to assuage the madness of the unfortunate man. But, though he took much pains, neither could he prevail. When no hope appeared of easing the madman, the abbess suddenly bethought herself of the said dust, and immediately ordered her servant to go and fetch her the small casket in which it was. As soon as she came with what she had been sent for into the porch of the house, in the inner part whereof the possessed person was tormented, he became suddenly silent, and laid down his head as if he had been falling asleep, stretching out all his limbs to rest. All present were silent and watchful, and stood attentive to see the end of the affair. After some time, the man that had been tormented sat up, and fetching a deep sigh said, Now I am like a sound man, for I am restored to my mental senses. They earnestly inquired how that came to pass, and he answered, As soon as that virgin drew near the porch of this house, with the casket she was carrying, all the evil spirits that vexed me departed, and having left me, were no more to be seen. Then the abbess gave him a little of that dust, and the priest having prayed, he had a very quiet night. Nor did he, from that time forward, suffer the least nocturnal fear or disturbance from the old enemy. Sometime after, there was a certain little boy in the said monastery, who had been long tormented with a severe fever. He was one day anxiously expecting the hour at which his fit was to come on, when one of the brethren coming into him said, "'Shall I tell you, my child, how you may be cured of this distemper? Rise, go into the church, and get close to Oswald's tomb.' Stay there quiet, and do not leave the tomb. Be careful that you do not come away or stir from the place till the time that your fit is to go off shall have elapsed. Then I will go in and fetch you away. The boy did as he was advised, and the disease durst not affect him as he sat by the saint's tomb, but, in its fear, fled so absolutely that it durst not touch him either on the second or third day or ever after. The brother that came from thence and told me this added that at the time when he was talking with me, the young man was then still living in that monastery, on whom, when a boy, that miraculous cure had been wrought. Nor is it to be wondered at that the prayers of that king, who was then reigning with our Lord, should be very efficacious with him, since he, whilst formerly governing his temporal kingdom, was also wont to pray and take more pains for that which is eternal." In short, it is reported that he often continued in prayer from the hour of matin lauds till it was day, and that by reason of his constant custom of praying or giving thanks to the Lord, he was wont always, wherever he sat, to hold his hands turned up on his knees. It is also commonly reported, and became a trite proverb, that he ended his life in words of prayer. For when he was beset with weapons and enemies, and perceived that he must immediately be killed he prayed for the souls of his army. Whence it is proverbially said, Lord, have mercy on their souls, said Oswald, as he fell to the ground. His bones, therefore, were translated into the monastery which we have mentioned, and buried therein. But the king that slew him commanded his head, hands, and arms be cut off from the body, and hung upon stakes. But his successor in the throne, Oswiu, "'Coming thither a year after with his army, "'took them down, and buried his head "'in the church of Lindisfarne, "'and the hands and arms in the royal city.'" Nor was the fame of this renowned personage confined to Britain, but spreading the rays of his healing brightness even far beyond the sea, it reached also to Germany and Ireland. In short, The most reverend prelate Acca is wont to relate that when, in his journey to Rome, he and his bishop Wilfred stayed some time with Willibrod, the most holy bishop of the Frisians, he had often heard him talk of the wonders which had been wrought in that province at the relics of that most reverend king. And that in Ireland, when being yet only a priest, he led a pilgrim's life therein for the love of the eternal country, the fame of that king's sanctity was already spread far and near in that island also." one of the miracles, among the rest, which he related, we have thought fit to insert into our history. At the time, said he, of the mortality which made such great havoc in Britain and Ireland, among others, the infection reached a certain scholar of the Scottish race, a man indeed learned in worldly literature, but in no way solicitous or studious of his own eternal salvation, who, seeing his death near at hand, began to fear and tremble, Lest, as soon as he was dead, he should be hurried away to hell for his sins. He sent for me, for I was in that neighborhood, and whilst he was trembling and sighing, with a mournful voice he made his complaint to me in this manner. You see that my distemper gradually increases, and that I am now reduced to the point of death. Nor do I question, but that after death... Of my body, I shall be immediately snatched away to the perpetual death of my soul and undergo the torments of hell, since for a long time amidst all my reading of divine books I have rather addicted myself to vice than to keep the commandments of God. But it is my resolution, if the divine mercy shall grant me a new term of life, to correct my vicious habits and totally to reform my mind and whole course of life in obedience to the divine will. But I am sensible that I have no merits of my own to obtain a prolongation of life, nor can I confide in it unless it shall please God to forgive me, miserable and unworthy as I am, through the assistance of those who have faithfully served him. We have heard, and the report is universal, that there was in your nation a king of wonderful sanctity called Oswald, the excellency of whose faith and virtue is become renowned even after his death by the working of miracles. I beseech you... If you have any relics of his in your custody, that you will bring the same to me, in case the Lord shall be pleased through his merits to have mercy on me. I answered, I have indeed some of the stake on which his head was set up by the pagans when he was killed. And if you believe with a sincere heart the divine goodness may, through the merit of so great a man, both grant you a longer term of life here and render you worthy of admittance into eternal life. He answered immediately that he had entire faith therein. Then I blessed some water and put into it a chip of the aforesaid oak and gave it the sick man to drink. He presently found ease, and recovering of his sickness, lived a long time after. And, being entirely converted to God in heart and actions, wherever he came, he spoke of the goodness of his merciful Creator and the honor of his faithful servant." So, in death, King Oswald becomes Saint Oswald. A sainthood bestowed before the more stringent canonization procedures were developed, but one still recognized today, though he is not to be confused with the 10th century Saint Oswald, Archbishop of York. So if you come across a Saint Oswald's church, you might have to check to see which Oswald it's commemorating. However, curiously enough, and as Bede tells us, Oswald of Northumbria did have a following as a saint on the continent, and you can find his name in unexpected places. Bede recounts a number of incidents in which King Oswald helped to reinforce Christianity in his kingdom. Beyond the famous Battlefield Cross, he also invited the Irish missionary Saint Aidan over, serving himself as English translator for Irish-speaking Aidan. Aidan went on to found the illustrious monastery at Lindisfarne, a jewel in the crown of northern Christianity. These acts of holy patronage, along with the posthumous miracles, provide the chief basis for Oswald's saintliness. Though his military exploits are presented in a kind of proto-Crusader light, Oswald fending off the assaults of pagans and apostates on the good Christians of Northumbria, Bede never actually uses the word martyr to describe the king's death in battle. Later writers present Oswald that way. Indeed, one anonymously authored Life of Bede includes a kind of coming attractions pitch for some of the great figures a reader will encounter in the Historia Ecclesiastica, in which we find written, quote, "'Witness to Oswald's invincible constancy in the faith, who, while he gloried in nothing but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by that cross triumphed over the foes of the Holy Cross, and by devoting his treasures to support of the needy, entered heaven adorned with the double crown of charity and martyrdom.'" Quote. Why might Bede, though, hesitate to call Oswald a martyr for his faith? He is a Christian killed by a pagan, Pinda of Mercia. That is the logic used by later writers in deeming his death a martyrdom. And Bede readily identifies plenty of other figures as martyrs in his history, so why not Oswald? Well, certainly one answer is simply that Bede is being precise about the technical definition of martyrdom. Martyr comes from the Greek for witness, and that's central to the early church's concept of martyrdom. A martyr is one whose death is an act of witnessing for the Christian faith. You're not a martyr just because you are a devout Christian who meets a violent death. So, even if Oswald dies in a battle that, in a, a larger sense, is defending the Christian faith, that's not a clear-cut enough scenario for the definition to definitely apply. His life and miracles provide evidence of saintliness, but fall short of proving him a martyr. For Bede, anyway. And indeed, Bede says that Oswald died, quote, fighting for his country, which is not the same thing as fighting for Christ. But we might also notice that Bede is a bit vague in his details of Oswald's last campaign. We get the who, the where, and the win of the battle, but not really the why. That might be because the why doesn't quite mesh so well with the portrait of this mild, humble, and saintly king that Bede has been constructing so far. If this final battle did occur at Oswestry, as Stevenson says in his footnote, then that means it was taking place in what was Welsh territory at the time. That suggests that Oswald was not defending his homeland against barbaric invaders. Rather, he was the one leading an army of conquest, or if not conquest, at least one of adventure, raiding and harrowing. And later historians have looked at how Oswald reestablished Northumbrian supremacy during his reign, and have proposed a picture of Oswald that is considerably more militaristically aggressive and combative than Bede's portrayal lets on. The reality of Oswald is likely falling prey to the medieval love of typologies, which not even Bede is immune to. Once you have a figure established as a strong type, the narratives around them tend to bend the world to suit the patterns of that type. This typological mode of thought is kind of distinctive of medieval rhetoric, and not just rhetoric, but worldview, processing people and events through how they embody these repeating types, but while it's characteristic of the Middle Ages, it's hardly exclusive to them, For as hyper-aware as we are of harmful stereotypes today, we still seem to want or need to process the world through our own sets of types. We use the type of the autocrat and the revolutionary to assess political leaders' behavior. Harking back to our recent miniseries, in true crime shows, while stereotypes might be carefully avoided, larger concepts of types still shape how perpetrators and victims are presented to an audience. Critics writing about medieval hagiography have noted how many medieval saints' lives render all of these distinct individuals into the same stock figure, sanding off most of their individuality. Well, today you see that same kind of homogenizing, flattening of victims in particular in police procedural docudramas and true crime accounts. Positive qualities and relationships are emphasized negative aspects of their lives are downplayed or omitted. Often, they are reduced to roles as beloved fathers and mothers, or sons and daughters, with that as their defining characteristic. And I'm not criticizing that choice in how you tell the story of someone who has been murdered. I'm just pointing out that this is one way we continue to engage in typological historiography that really is a continuation of the medieval mode, which itself is a continuation of a biblical mode, and you could probably find even earlier antecedents in cave paintings if you could interpret them with keen enough eyes. Anyway, the point here is that Bede is probably heightening Oswald's sanctity and mildness because the Christian king acts as a foil to the pagan king Pinda, who looms large as the great threat and rival to Northumbria. He's the Khrushchev to Northumbrian Eisenhowers and Kennedys, a geopolitical force of similar power representing an other ideology. Penda is a bit of a stock villain for Anglo-Saxon Christian historians, so to fit the structure, Oswald is perhaps made to be a stock Christian hero. Indeed, not just a hero, but a saint. And let's end with a look at that saint's relics. As Bede relates, Oswald's severed head was recovered by his successor, Oswiu, who had it buried at Lindisfarne, where St. Cuthbert was later buried. Both Oswald's skull and Cuthbert's allegedly incorrupt body were on the move during the 8th and 9th centuries to keep them out of the hands of the Vikings who were raiding the northern abbeys, uh, including Lindisfarne. Really, including, is an understatement, the sacking of Lindisfarne in 793 is commonly cited as the signal event for the start of the Viking Age. Anyway, after a bit of a term as a traveling roadshow, both Cuthbert's body and Oswald's head end up enshrined, literally, in the newly built Durham Cathedral in 999. Joining this party... Bede's own relics end up for a time kept in a linen bag within St. Cuthbert's tomb alongside Oswald's skull, having been covertly removed from their original resting place at Jarrow and brought to Durham by one Alfred, a story we covered way back in episode 22 concerning Alfred the Bone Hunter. This bag was found when Cuthbert's tomb was opened in 1104, an event we discuss in detail in episodes 40 and 41. Uh, and at that point, Bede's relics were moved to their own separate shrine in Durham Cathedral. But Oswald's skull, bearing the marks of his battlefield wounds, remained with Cuthbert and was still there almost 1,200 years after the king's death, when the tomb was opened and examined by James Rain in 1827, as we discussed in episode 42. Here is Raine's account of how they found Oswald's skull as recorded in his book, St. Cuthbert, with an account of the state in which his remains were found upon the opening of his tomb in Durham Cathedral in the year 1827. Rain has just been describing a miscellany of small bones found alongside one of the outer coffins in the tomb, likely the relics listed as the bones of the children slain by Herod in medieval accounts of the contents of the tomb. So here's Rain. The above relics, which were numerous, were speedily removed, and during the process, the lid of a third coffin was discovered below them, but in such a state of decay that portions of it were almost necessarily raised along with the superincumbent bones and fragments of wood. During this part of the investigation, an iron ring was found, which I shall notice by and by, and there was also raised from the lower end of the grave another full-grown skull, in a somewhat imperfect state, the resting place of which was evidently beneath the last-mentioned lid. That this was the reputed skull of King Oswald, which the anonymous monk and Reginald both proved to have been the only relic replaced in the coffin of St. Cuthbert in 1104, may fairly be presumed. The situation in which it was found fully admits of the supposition. Perhaps, under all the circumstances of the case, with such a discovery and such historical information upon the point before me, I may be blamed for conjecturing. The tomb was opened again in 1899 for a somewhat more sophisticated forensic examination, though still rather rushed by modern standards. The findings of this excavation are given by J.T. Fowler, who presents a much more detailed description of the state of Oswald's skull, along with a diagram of its pieces. Here's Fowler. Four fragments of a very large calvarium were identified as belonging to one skull. The largest consisted of the posterior portion of the frontal bone from about half an inch in front of the coronal suture together with the adjacent portions of the right and left parietal bones. It completed a transverse section of the skull from the squamous suture on each side. This fragment exhibited a large cut half an inch in front of coronal suture, which, beginning on the left side, extended for about 3 18 inch onto a much smaller fragment of the left parietal bone for about 1 inch. The cut was in a downward and forward direction, and indicated a blow from a heavy, sharp weapon, having been struck by someone on the left side of the victim. On the extreme right of this cut, and at its termination, the inner table of the skull is fractured off to the extent of 1 quarter inch by 5 5⁄8 inch. With this exception, the cut is perfectly clean through the outer and inner tables of the skull with sharp edges until the left extremity is reached, when the bone becomes again jagged, as though fractured off by the leverage of the weapon and the blow after it had been penetrated to a certain depth. In all probability, the anterior part of the skull was shorn off by the blow. An oblong fragment of the right parietal bone shows on its posterior border a second clean-cut wound, but evidently given from the right side, and in a much more vertical direction. It may have been given after the king fell from the effect of the first described and larger wound. Below, and on the same portion of right parietal bone, was a smaller cut, which does not, however, penetrate beyond the inner table of the skull, and which is just covered by the end of a thumb. A large portion of the right temporal bone, to which adjoins a part of the occipital bone, exactly fitted to the fragment of adjacent parietal bone described above. A lower jaw, complete with some teeth attached, the condyle of which seemed to articulate satisfactorily with the right glenoid fossa, was also found amongst the bones, together with a much mutilated upper jaw. Though these bones presented some similar characteristics with the previous four fragments, there was not sufficient evidence to certainly identify them as belonging to the same calvarium. I incline, however, to the opinion that they did so. So, that was, and presumably still is, the condition of King Oswald of Northumbria's skull, which rests within Durham Cathedral to this day, though, to my knowledge, No one involved in any of the 19th century exhumations or since has reported the grave dirt to have performed any other wondrous healings. Our riddle today involves something that might have been useful to early adherents of the cult of St. Oswald. It comes from the Latin Riddle Collection of Symphosius, and here it is, as translated by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois. Not heavy, I, with water, weighty grow. Diffused through all my yawning caves t'will go, nor of its own accord will outward flow. The answer here is pretty straightforward, actually. There's no sneaky metaphor going on. The lightweight thing that soaks up water and holds onto it until you squeeze it is a sponge. And this riddle serves as a reminder that humans have been using sponges in the washroom for millennia, albeit Natural sponges, rather than the classic artificial yellow sponge, though natural sponges have enjoyed a resurgence in modern bath gear. Well, I suppose the sponges themselves don't enjoy it that much. Anyway, a sponge would have been useful in soaking up the water poured over many a saint's tomb to extract its healing properties. And on a side note, it turns out humans aren't the only mammals who use sponges, Apparently, at least one population of female bottlenose dolphins, and pretty much only females as far as marine biologists have observed so far, also use sponges as tools. They will attach a sponge to their rostrum, their beak, which seems to help protect it when they snoot around in the sandy seafloor to find food. And this does seem to be a phenomenon only recently observed and confined to the females of certain family groups, with mothers passing the practice down to their daughters, which additionally reminds us that culture is not a concept confined to humanity either. And with that unexpected trip to the bottom of the sea, we conclude this episode of Medieval Death Trip. You can get references for the sources used in this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me emails there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. If you'd like to find out the riddle or mystery word in advance, as well as get other updates about the show, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at Patreon. Look for us at patreon.com slash MDT Podcast. I'd like to thank our most recent patrons, Tristan and Tom. Thank you both for your support. Tristan and Tom, like the rest of our patrons, get access to bonus appendix episodes and our audiobook of Jordanus' Wonders of the East, and if any of that sounds good to you, you can support us too for as little as a dollar a month and listen to all of the extras. But until next time, remember, as we enter candle and jack-o'-lantern season, that even if you have some St. Oswald grave dust hanging in a pouch in your house, it's only guaranteed to protect that one support post maybe a whole wall, but it does not provide whole home coverage. So put some fresh batteries in your smoke detectors, and thanks for listening.